welcome to episode number 72 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon. I'm the Managing Director of Work-Life Psych, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Pilar Ortiz. This episode is the first of two where we focus on a topic that's coming up more and more at the moment, possibly as a byproduct of the fact that so many of us are now working at home in a relatively unplanned and potentially unwanted way. And that topic is imposter syndrome. That is the chronic, irrational self-doubt that can really hold us back from getting any sense of accomplishment or success at work. It can turn up in different ways for different people, but it's a conversation I've been having a lot lately. So we thought we'd introduce it. And as I say, this is the first of two episodes. And next time we'll have a special guest to explore it in more detail. If you've got any questions, please get in touch. You can uh, send us a message on Twitter at MyPocketPsych or send us a longer message via the website, which you can find at worklifepsych.com slash contact. And as ever, thank you for listening. Hi, Pilar. It's great to be back. How are you? I am well. I am well, I have to say. Yes. Uh, yes. Doing okay. That, that's the most important thing at the moment. In September 2020, everyone asks everyone else, are you well? How are you doing? And the, the, the most we can hope for is, right, I'm well, I'm not ill, uh, I'm doing okay. Um, I have to say, I raise an eyebrow if someone says, amazing, everything's great. I go, it's not really, is, <laughs> is everything great? Um, and it, it was one of the things that occurred to me earlier today um, when preparing for this it's just another thing that's more difficult during a global pandemic to to plan for a podcast because who knows what the world will look like in terms of regulations and updates by the time people are listening to this episode. So hopefully we'll be talking about a bit of an evergreen topic, but looking at it through the lens of the disruption to the world of work brought about by this pandemic. I hope that makes sense. Completely. I have to say, when I'm listening to, to podcasts, to episodes from another show, so I'm always like, was this before or after? And everyone's now time stamping the recordings because it makes yeah. so much difference. It does, even if it's because you know someone is in their bedroom recording it rather than their nice studio that they normally have, or even if references are made to things that are really quite stuck in time. You know, there are things that are happening now. So we don't want to make this stuff too um, dependent on being up to date with all of the regulations. But at the same time, there are things that have happened and are happening because of this pandemic and their impact um, on the world of work that brings some topics kind of further to the top of our list. So today we're going to be talking about one of those topics through this lens and showing how it's relevant um, to to many of us and our experience of work, and that's imposter syndrome. So before we get into that, though, we thought we'd share some updates from our end um, because stuff's happening. Pilar, what's happening with you? Well, the first thing I want to say before I forget, can I say hello to two listeners? You can say hello to both <laughs> our listeners, yes. <laughs> So I just want to say hello to Anish and Teresa because they listen and they've told me they listen and I think that's great. So hello and other listeners, let us know you're listening because it really does make make our day. So uh, worklifepsych.com. And so um, updates, I thought 
So while I've been podcasting with you, I've been thinking, okay, how has my way of working from home, because I've always used the home as a workplace, as one of the workplaces, uh, how has, how did my routine change during lockdown back in March and actually even now to now? And it's, for example, my starting and ending times for work have been much more strict. So I've decided, okay, at that time mm. I stop. Um, I've tried to disconnect completely during lunch. That has been another sacred bit. And I found it sometimes difficult. Sometimes I, I didn't used to. Um, what's been, um, well, I've also tried to move deliberately between my, my desk, which is a small desk in a corner of the lounge, the dining table, which is a table in the middle of the lounge, and the sofa, which is another corner of the lounge, and use those three spaces uh, deliberately as different spaces. And the most interesting one um, for me has been that for the last two weeks since we came back from Spain, my husband and I, we we haven't set the alarm in the mornings. So uh, I'm going to have to do that next week because I have some workshops that start at nine o'clock. So I don't want to <laughs> one day we sleep. Mm. But that I think that's made a huge difference. We still wake up at more or less the same time we had the alarm. But I feel that I really like that. I'm intrigued about the moving between the desk, table and sofa. What what are you hoping to achieve with that and what works for you? One is a health, a physical health posture. So making mm -hmm. sure that I'm not stuck. The other is the the using the desk. Uh, sorry. Yeah, the desk is with my computer. My monitor is quite an upright and efficiency all um, if I'm standing at the desk, it's a more writing-y, flowy kind of activity. Whereas at the desk, it's usually, um, sorry, at the table, it's usually more reflection, reading, stuff that actually I don't need my computer for. So it, it's, uh, and then sofa is usually if I'm taking a break or if I'm taking a, um, a virtual coffee or an informal call. So what's interesting is what I'm facing. So for example, in my desk, I'm facing the monitor and the wall. At the table and the sofa, it's a bit more of an open uh, view. So I think mm -hmm. the changing of the surrounding just makes me feel different for each task. It it relaxes me a bit as well. I think that probably this there's no this is like you say, Richard, me search. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but more than anything, I think very deliberately the the posture change I think is important for me. That's a key point, isn't it? I mean, if it works for you, it works for you. And if you're doing it deliberately and you're doing it in a way that's associated with different activities, that's fantastic. And it probably does, in a sense, replicate what an office-based employee would do during their day. Maybe not sofa, but moving from the desk to different tables to different parts of a building for different purposes. Um, and that movement is the bit that, that keeps us healthy, keeps us going. So um, I think that sounds great. Uh, I, I try and move away from whatever desk I'm at regularly. If it's something I can do standing up, I will. If it's something I can do walking, I will. Mm. Um, and my little Apple Watch reminds me every hour to move about a bit. If I'm too absorbed in something, I do get that reminder, which is which is quite nice. Mm. That sounds great. I would I would love not to have an alarm. But unfortunately, <laughs> if I didn't do that, I'm I'm not sure when I'd wake up. <laughs> well, the other thing I've done also is um, I've I'm keeping my mornings free and I'm not setting any appointments or meetings before eleven o'clock. So mm -hmm. that's also given me a nice stretch in the morning to be able to get up, do whatever, even go for a walk. So I think that's a I really like that start to the day. 
I would love to know how many people are doing something similar mm. because they can, because they're working at, at home, that they're experimenting with different ways of organizing their day because they've got a bit more freedom mm. and they're benefiting from that. I mean, we touched on it last time that some people might feel a little anxious or unhappy about going back to the shared workplace because of a fear that they would lose that kind of flexibility and uh, maybe worry about, you know, being in, in others' line of sight all the time rather than the privacy of their own home. If you're doing something like this, listeners, I'd love to hear from you um, how you're structuring your day if you're still working at home. And if you're an experienced home worker, what are the things that work for you? What is it you've been doing for a long time as you, as you smile benevolently <laughs> at everyone else as they adapt to this? Well, since we spoke um, last time, yeah. I've moved offices um, moved into my office, um, and now I'm commuting. And the biggest change is getting back into a commute for me. And I'm really lucky because my commute is super short and in the opposite direction of everybody else. Yeah. So there are so few people on my commute. It's about 30 minutes door to door. And I'm, I'm loving it. Um, I didn't think I'd miss a workspace as much as I did for the last six months, but I have a brighter, bigger, more modern workspace. And I'm right next to a huge dock in the Docklands. And so I can go for walks um, by the river, uh, by the water. Mm -hmm. It's not the river, mm -hmm. uh, but, but by the water. And um, have a really nice space to go and walk. Because previously I was right in the heart of the square mile of the city of London. And walking in a straight line is impossible, just <laughs> the sheer volume of people. So I, I found that really nice. I found the, the rhythm of the day is really nice to, to know I'm getting up, I'm doing this, I'm leaving home. I'm on my way to the office, you know, but at the same time, I'm in a quieter part of town. I've got no concerns about crowds. I have my own office. I don't share that space with anyone else. So I'm definitely not saying everyone should feel gung-ho about this. Um, this is just my experience. But I think my big learning point is the routine really benefits me and having a space for work really benefits me. I just like to have that separation. And I know I'm lucky to be able to have that at the moment. But that's, yeah, that's been the biggest, the biggest change for me over the last few weeks. Yeah, that's amazing. And also that, that awareness of what's working. Uh, I, I wonder how many people who'd never thought of what helped them to work best or feel best, whether now they, they've gained that awareness, as, as you were saying earlier. Yeah. It's interesting. The, um, I, th I think you also read it. There was a, Listeners, there was an article in wired.co.uk, I think it was, about the missing the commute and, and mm -hmm. how some people were missing some creative time because they're in the commute is maybe when the mind wandered off or whatever. So interesting that you've got, of course, your commute sounds, your commuting journey sounds quite good. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that, that, that even incorporating that is, uh, yeah, that you're finding that it makes for a better day. At the moment, it does. Oh. At the moment. I mean, maybe in six months time, when lots more people are, are on the same DLR train as me, uh, that will That's be different. True. You know, um, it's it's relatively quiet and I'm going in at slightly different times. So while I say I have a routine, there is a, a vague sense of a routine there. It's not like clockwork um, and it's still novel. You know, mm. so I'm still enjoying looking out the window at things and spotting new buildings going up and just noticing things I've not seen before. But I'd much rather do that than get stuck into work as soon as I get on the train um, and, and, and look up um, when I get there. 
So I, I'd much prefer to to engage with the journey, but that's just that's just my preference. It's um it's different for for different people, yeah. um, and I know I'm not representative in, in that sense. So actually, that really does touch on what we're going to talk about today in the main, which is about working at home and how we might feel about working at home. And so whether you you are doing that or it's coming to an end for you or you're going to have some time working from home or who knows, we may all be working at home again in the future. It's it's worthwhile to, to think about this and, and look at it with, with some intent um, and look at it with a bit of a bit of detail. And uh, you know, this concept of imposter syndrome, well, it could be exacerbated by lots and lots of the facts but let's remind ourselves when we're not talking about working from home for an afternoon to address the plumber coming around. We're talking about working at home, maybe on an ongoing basis when that's not how you started that job. It's, it's represented a change for you. You didn't start as a home worker and you're adapting to that and potentially, as we said, missing some of the aspects of a fixed co-located workplace. Um, I'm trying not to say the office the whole time because not everyone works in an office, but you, you know what I mean, not going to the same place every day. For you, this represents a change. Um, and Pilar, we've talked before, right, uh, about some of the things um, that can be uh, less than great when pe- people are all working at home. And one of those was about trying to replicate the physical office when everyone's at home and put all of those um, meetings in the diary and assume things are going to be just like they were when we were together. Mm, yeah. And, you know, you said the last time we spoke that one of the most important things is communication when people are working separately um, and purposeful communication so that um, people aren't isolated or things aren't misunderstood or or people aren't um, inadvertently left out of the loop, regardless of what it is that we're doing, communication is going to be so key. Yeah. And I wonder, thinking about the... Uh, the the shift when we've started to work from home and I know that now we are in (laughs) this has not been a shift but maybe there's still a little bit of that of feeling um, sometimes I have to communicate that everything is okay and managing that communication in a different way as you say if we're thinking well we should be doing better then we might want to communicate that we are doing better so I think it's it's also finding uh, that that what kind of communication we're comfortable with Mm-hmm. And, and you know, matching that um, to the topic and the medium that we can use to communicate with people. Um, the, the, the risk is, I suppose, falling into the trap of not communicating with your peers because you assume everyone's busy mm-hmm. or not wanting to ask for assistance because you think that will look um, bad yeah. and reflect badly on you as a professional and uh, potentially not wanting to admit and seek out support because you're finding you're finding it difficult like like many people are, are finding it difficult so there's lots of things um workplace uh issues that can be made much more difficult if we haven't gone into this in a in a planned way in an organized way and some of those traps you know inadvertently isolating yourself, Um, maybe trying to avoid conversations that you think might be easier if you were face to face and delaying those because doing them over a video call or over the phone is, is out of your comfort zone. And as we know from our discussions about procrastination, those things don't tend to get any better or easier with time. But 
sitting at home, maybe not feeling confident means that we, we're, we're tempted to push those off into, well, the inbox for future me, let's say. And, and as we've said before, if you just rely on a minimum number of, of media to communicate with people, like email and instant messaging, well, then you're, you're going to miss out on a, a whole heap of stuff that comes with tone of voice and facial expressions and all of that stuff. And that, that's just a few things to start us off with. Yeah. Uh, and the point you make about those conversations, I think that especially the, the, that you wait until you are in person with someone to have them or that you would have waited. I think that's particularly relevant as some of the team members start to go back into the office or as some people start to go back to the workplace uh, in, in, at different points. It's that there's that temptation to wait for any meeting conversation to be had when we are all together and that can start to affect the work it can delay us it can stop us it can it can make us feel disconnected from team members because we're thinking well until I've talked to them and that is going to be in three days I can't move this forward so I think that's a very um, that's a great point of awareness to notice whether we're doing that deliberately or just because that's how we think um, we will work best I don't know yeah, is is it because you you know the person and the topic it, it really requires face to face, or is it because it's uncomfortable and it would just be easier if you said to yourself, "Oh, I'll wait till I see yeah. them next week." Yeah, it's different. Um, and, and of course, you know the the for many workplaces, um, it there won't be a case of everyone being in at the same time for quite a long time. Many workplaces are organizing themselves into teams that are going to come in, you know, for a few days at a time. But many colleagues won't cross paths physically for some time. So it's not really sustainable to hold off important activities uh, for the face-to-face. -face. And, and never mind things like, um, I need to ask them something, but, you know, giving people feedback, uh, the formal performance feedback and appraisal processes, a lot of this is going to have to be done remotely. Because it can't be abandoned, you know, it can't, maybe you can't push, push pause on everything just because people are not co-located. And of course, if you're uh, working at home, you, you know, as we've said, you're missing some of the visual cues of the workplace, some of the things that happen around you incidentally. Um, but what we tend to benefit from when we're co-located is that sort of end of the day, everyone's leaving at around the same time. There's that shared experience of there, we've, we've done our day. And if you're working alone, it can be very easy to believe that you maybe haven't done enough at the end of the day and you could maybe do a bit more or even though you've put in the hours you don't feel like you've achieved anything and that might well be exacerbated by the fact that, you know that you're by yourself whereas if you're in the office you might be able to share that concern or at least know that other people had it even if they didn't uh, express it to you face to face and of course that can lead to people working unsustainable longer hours over a period of time which are often invisible to their employer, you know, unless they're tracking them, those the, the extra time and effort that goes in from home workers is, is relatively invisible. And, you know, pu putting off difficult situations is one thing, but if something happens that's negative, uh, an experience, a setback, a challenge, a disappointment, um, that can be quite difficult to deal with when you're sat at your kitchen table rather than in the middle of a shared office space. And we might respond to that quite differently, owing to a lack of immediate support. And of course, if we know um, 
you know, if we had some kind of decision tree in front of us, if this happens, call this person, if this happens, message this person. But not everyone's going to feel confident to pick up a phone or instigate a video chat to look for that kind of help. And this is the day-to-day challenges of the workplace, not, you know, not emergencies, not crises. And so for some people in some roles, the working at home experience can be more difficult because of some of the everyday stuff that they realize now, hey, if I was in the office, if I was surrounded by my colleagues, this would feel and look uh, a lot different. It requires, you were mentioning this earlier, but it requires a lot more proactivity to get yourself out of those uncomfortable situations, whether it's like you're saying, if you're stuck or if you feel like, um, well, your, the day is coming to an end, but you haven't achieved what you wanted. And it requires us, I think, to be more proactive in solving that rather than just sensing what's around us and, and sometimes waiting to see where, where the signal is that someone can help us or whatever, or, or for us to waiting to, to, for that person to just come through the door at some point on their way somewhere else and then we can grab them. So I think it's all, it, mm-hmm. yeah, you make me think it's really about, we even need to be more deliberate about how we solve those situations for ourselves. It's not likely your boss is going to wander into your kitchen, you know, and say, Oh, by the way, can I help you with anything? Or is there anything you wanted to ask me? So, you know, for, for the, the team leader, the manager, the, the leader, um, understanding the importance of reaching out to people, not, not bothering them, but reaching out to them and letting them know that, that, uh, community, communication lines are open and the best way to have communication, the best, me- best method to use and availability and all that kind of stuff is, is, is really important because otherwise we can all be in our own little bubble, uh, focusing on our experience of this and maybe not realizing that at the other end of the phone or the other end of a Zoom call, there's someone who would be able to put our minds at rest or just share the experience normalize the experience a little bit and take take some of the sting out of it. And I think you're right, proactivity plays a role in this. The, the problems won't solve themselves. And in fact, thinking about them over and over again and beating ourselves up about them is not going to solve them either. So action, proactivity, and um, a bit of um, uh, befriending yourself, you know, a bit of compassion for the self, knowing that Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has difficult days, uh, but we still need to do stuff, you know, to, to help ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult if you see that other people around you, around you online or however, um, are not struggling. And if you, if you feel like other people are, are, are fine about everything and you're the only person who's struggling, I think that can even, that can make it more difficult. But I think it's, it's really important to remember that there's learning. Uh, and no one was born knowing how to do anything. So we've all had to learn at some point. So just some of us are a little bit further behind uh, than other people. And we've seen how people respond to this working at home situation quite differently, depending on things like their confidence levels with technology and systems, um, their own home living arrangements and who they share their home with, um, aspects of their personality. And of course, what we're going to talk about now, aspects of the way that they think about themselves um, in, in what they do as a result of that. And, and we'll all respond a, a little bit differently to that. So let, let's talk specifically about this, this notion of imposter syndrome, because it's something, well, I've yet to meet someone in my professional life that's not experienced some imposter syndrome at some time. And what I want to just 
put out there immediately. We're not talking about some diagnostic criteria. We're talking about tendencies and the results of those tendencies in our behavior and what happens as a result of that. So everything can be in, the, in these terms expressed on a scale. But imposter syndrome is, is really about overwhelming self-doubt, not sensible self-doubt about, you know, should, should, I be the the person to kick this off. Maybe someone more senior is in the room. Maybe that's not my job. But the overwhelming self-doubt when all the evidence is to the contrary. And it means that I don't really believe I belong here. I don't believe I deserve to have this job. And at any moment, this is all going to come crashing down because I will be found out. And that's the bit that maybe differentiates low confidence from imposter syndrome. Low confidence is there's an element in there where I I could build myself up. I know I need to work on it. Imposter syndrome is quite irrational in the sense of I, I can talk down all these accomplishments. I can give you good reasons for why I don't have those skills. I could give you lots of reasons why I'm, I'm a really bad performer. And, uh, but I won't because I don't want to talk about it because I'm afraid the evidence will come out and then my career will come crashing down around me. They, whoever they are, will discover that I'm a bit of a fraud and I don't deserve to be here. How do you think it would feel to have those kinds of thoughts and images trundling around in your mind all the time? I was going to ask you whether that all would result in almost a frozen state where you don't really, because of what was coming through my mind is if all those thoughts were on my mind at that extent, to that extent, I would freeze and actually I would put off a lot of stuff. Uh, so I wonder whether that's one of the things that might happen. That that's one of the um, outcomes that you know you're just uh, stuck because everything I do might result in a problem. So maybe if I do nothing, nothing will happen. Mm. The, the contrary can happen really commonly as well, which is frantic activity. Okay. To sort of pedal faster than everyone else around you uh, so that you have to prove yourself the whole time. But of course, this is done in the absence of a physical race. So you can't see how fast other people are pedaling. It's all based on your estimation of other people's skill. And we're really pretty bad at that. We don't see the internal workings of other people's minds. We don't see their self-doubt. We don't see their feelings about their own competence. And so we just assume lots of people around us are great or at least happy enough. And we're the one with the self-doubt. And it's a really interesting, um, if difficult, phenomenon because it can result in that unsustainable, exhausting uh, hard work. And it can also exist in people, um, result, I should say, in people turning down great opportunities Mm. that are offered to them because they think, no way, I don't deserve that. And they'll talk down their accomplishments. They'll ascribe performance feedback to luck or the person doesn't realize all the bad things they've done as well as the good things. So it's, it's not based on evidence. It's not based on data. It's, it's really an irrational, um, thinking, um, pattern if you like. And, um, you know, it's, it's when it was originally studied and originally identified as a sort of a tendency, it was um, studied in, in female academics. And uh, initially it was viewed as something that women experienced, but 
subsequent research has shown that actually happens across genders, age groups, nationalities, cultures, professions. There's certain things in common uh, across all of those groups about having self-doubt and, and doubt in the legitimacy of your position and your accomplishments. Maybe luck Maybe you had it easy. Maybe you had advantages that someone else or the, the other, the other version, which is I, I'm not good enough for that. I'm not good enough for the thing you've offered me. Now, it, the research does show us that you're more likely to experience uh, some level of imposter syndrome if you're already in a minority in your workplace or in your profession. And that makes sense, right? Yeah. So if you're a woman in a male dominated environment, you might already ask yourself, did I deserve to get here? Um, and you might have legitimate questions and you might have, you know, passed a public exam and you could compare scores with other people. But most of us don't exist in a workplace where we've entered through a formal, publicly comparable experience. And so those stories we keep to ourselves. And, and gender is just one example of that. It could be age, it, it could be race, it could be nationality, so many, so many things that we may not talk about we keep it to ourselves, and this is the social bit. We all keep it to ourselves, so it's not spoken about a lot, which could really help to normalize it. Yeah, I was going. Go to ahead. I can. I can hear. <laughs> <laughs> no, what was going through my mind also is, uh, and you've got this in your notes about the feeling of isolation that you can have, because even if other people are feeling it, it's not talked about uh, and so and all the self-talk and everything it can really feel very isolating if you're going through something like this well the example i was thinking of was was actually if you were in a co-located office environment and you put the phone down on a client at the end of the call <laughs> <laughs> you, you you end the conversation and one of your colleagues says to you you know i, I wasn't intentionally listening in, but I really like that phrase you used at the end. It sounded a, like a really good way of describing our new products. And you go, oh, wow, okay, thanks for the feedback. I didn't realize that phrase was a good phrase. In, in the moment, you've had some positive feedback from a colleague, not that I need to take you into a room to talk about your performance, but a little gentle piece of feedback that says, I recognize in you something that's great. If you're sitting alone in your kitchen, you're not going to get that. You won't get that incidental uh, feedback, that incidental experience. And likewise, you won't be able to look up from your desk, your cubicle, whatever it is, and see the selection of smiles, grimaces, heads in hands, and everything in between to remind you that everyone else is having a day. It could be a good day, it could be a bad day, but they're all having a day. So we're missing that stuff, unless, as we said earlier, we really intentionally communicate with each other about how things are going, how we're feeling about it, what help we need, what help we can offer. And in that sense, replicate some of the ongoing dialogue that we benefit from in, in, a, in a shared work environment. And something that sometimes um, we shy away from is almost creating a system around this kind of thing. And for some people, it will feel like we're dehumanizing some of this stuff that makes us human. But actually, by having a system, for example, that once a week we share something that we are proud of, or once a week we share something that through our limited interactions we've seen from one of our colleagues, it can really, I think it can open up these conversations or at least give them space 
but I think they have to be, you have to create a process around them, um, even if it feels a bit oh, and technical and, oh. but if not, we, we don't have that space. And I think making space for conversations like this is important. And it, it, it is about normalizing the highs and lows and talking about them all from a, from a problem solving perspective, not a blaming individuals um, perspective. Yeah. The conversation is what is what really matters. No more than me saying to you, Pilar, if you were having a bad day, it would not help you one jot if I said, oh, cheer up, <laughs> you know, or calm down, or don't worry, those things don't. So for someone to say to someone, oh, no, you're really good, that's not the end of it. You know, that that's not going to shift their their view of themselves because they think of 50 reasons why they're not good. But actually having a conversation that says, oh, I, I, I say that to myself sometimes. You know, when that really happens, it's when I'm talking to her or when I'm with that group and I'm presenting to him or when I have to deal with that client. I, have, I really worry about my own ability to do my job. And we don't want to put everyone on a downer. But we do want to illustrate that we can all experience a wobble from time to time. And it may be that one of your colleagues has a lot of this tendency, this imposter syndrome in their thinking, and maybe they've overcome it, or maybe they've identified tips and tricks that have helped them, but you're you're having a dialogue about it rather than keeping it to yourself. And if you've listened to the podcast uh, over the last couple of years, when we spoke about this topic of psychological flexibility, we really emphasized that very few problems are solved by simply thinking hard about them. So I think this is another good example of a conversation is a much better experience than simply sitting alone and talking yourself out of opportunities, decisions uh, and activities because you think you don't deserve it. And that's an important distinction, I think. So, you know, in the absence of that person sitting next to you and telling you your grace and giving you the opportunity to talk to them about their performance, well, what can we do about this? And if we are working at home at the moment and you recognize some of this tendency in yourself, there's quite a few things that you can do. And every time I look at the literature around this and I read it in coaching textbooks or I look at a paper about it, I'm struck about uh, yes, I fulfill, tick the box, tick the box, tick the box, sometimes in a very small way, sometimes in a very big way. But yeah, I have some perfectionistic tendencies, although Pilar may not have seen them ever <laughs> with our working together, but also downplaying positive feedback from people and, and just assuming that other people find some things easy the same way I do, some things like that. That all fits into this kind of corner of the room I call imposter syndrome. Many of my former colleagues would not identify with any of that and say he never shuts up about what he's good at. But there are certain combinations of things that make that uh, more likely um, in certain contexts, people, tasks. So it's not the whole of life. It's not a general imposter syndrome about you as a human being. But as we've said previously, one of the first things you can do is spot it, you know, spot the self-talk that says you shouldn't put your hand up or says that you're not as good as others, just spot it. It's the noticing of that is a really useful first step. Non-judgmentally noticing it, not trying to change it. You know, change, trying to change that is the equivalent of cheer up. 
and it, it doesn't really do anything. So listening to it rather than wrestling with it so you can see what am I saying to myself and how helpful is it for me to focus on how I compare it to other people. Comparisons to others are rarely helpful, right? And we've said that before as well. Um, what can be very useful, much more useful, is to focus on your journey, how you're doing getting from A to B. Maybe the journey is getting used to working at home. Maybe the journey is securing your next role, securing your next promotion, securing your next job, full stop. Focus on your journey, not what you think other people are experiencing because you can't see into their minds. Also, we talked about the context we're all experiencing right now, the global pandemic. We're going to each experiencing it experience it differently because we're individuals and we've got different circumstances, but recognize it. This isn't something you've done to cause this. Not not one person can, can point the finger at themselves and say, I'm responsible for COVID-19. So a bit of compassion for yourself to recognize that you're working in a difficult situation and um, open up, talk to other people. I've been doing a lot of sessions with clients lately about resilience building skills. And one of the most useful and sustainable coping strategies we can use when we're in a difficult time, whenever that is, is to ask for help, is to reach out to someone you trust to, to look for assistance. And in this case, speaking with someone you trust about your concerns, it may not be that they have an answer. And in fact, sometimes it's better if they don't tell you what to do, but they say something like, yep, me too. And that can be a great first step to acknowledging, okay, they think the same way. Maybe someone else does. Maybe somebody else does. And I'll reference, and I I wonder, will Pilar remember this off the top of her head? Because I certainly don't. We did a whole episode about uh, the role of our thinking and the the techniques so that we can get a bit of distance between ourselves and our thoughts and see them as sort of passing experiences rather than what imposter syndrome would want us to think, that those thoughts are true and inflexible and permanent and instructions or even threats. So I'll pop in the show notes the link back to when we spoke about those diffusion techniques before, because that that could be a great way to get some healthy, clear blue water from you and your behavior and the thoughts that can be disruptive or upsetting or just simply unhelpful. Because as you remember, when we talked about psychological flexibility before, one of the things that we want to try and avoid is wrestling with those thoughts and emotions and somehow overpowering them because they're always going to be more powerful than us. So part of this is dropping the rope um, that's in between us in this tug of war and not struggling with them, giving up that struggle and focusing instead on what's within our control and what we can do. So in a sense, focusing on our, our, um, our tasks, our goals, our day-to-day, focusing on our journey, much more helpful than ruminating over comparisons with other people, uh, the legitimacy of our position, um, the legitimacy of our qualifications and all of that, because that doesn't lead to anywhere particularly useful. Does that make sense, Pilar? Yes, it does. <laughs> and uh, off the top of my head, in case you're listening to this show on a podcast app, the episode that Richard was referring to, 61, How to Deal with Anxious Thoughts and Feelings. Is that the one you meant, Richard? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Early, and, yeah. and we, we, yeah, and we talked about that specifically with regard to 
the, the, the lockdown yes. experience, that the, the outset of this, it's all still relevant. Yeah, it's, all those principles are still relevant. It is very relevant. And I think um, you're making me think that the 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 me too uh, aspect of it as in yes i also have those kind of thoughts for me has been is for me is very important because i do suffer from comparis- comparisonitis i think is the one <laughs> of looking around and seeing that people are doing much better than me but actually as soon as someone has said well you know i feel like i'm making it up i go ah oh, me too that's okay then <laughs> it's part of the process part of our journey it's powerful. together yeah Yes, exactly. And we're all going through the unknown at the moment. You know, no matter what people say, no matter what you might see on the media or online, we don't know where all this is going. And so we're all sort of heading into something very new. And in fact, I'd be much more suspicious of someone who said, I've got it all figured out. (laughs) Well, no, how could you? You know, we'll all have some unknowns we're grappling with and some elements of this we don't like. My point today, though, is that stuff could really turn up the volume on the imposter syndrome. And without getting back on my soapbox, I've destroyed the soapbox from a couple of episodes ago when I got a bit ranty, but uh, the, the tone in the press about show your face in the workplace, you need to be there to show willing. Um, if I'm going to make headcount reductions, I'll be looking for the faces I can see in the office. I mean, that's really going to contribute to people's self-doubt and worry. And it bears no relation to what's going on in the real world. It's a very antiquated view, I would argue, of the world of work, that just physical presence is what's going to make the difference, all things being equal. And so we need to think about the consequences of that kind of um, paper word journalism that's out there at the moment. Yeah, I agree. Well, there we are, another episode finished. Thank you for joining us once again. And please, if you have questions or comments about anything we've discussed this time around, get in touch. We love to hear from our listeners. You can send us a message on uh, Twitter at MyPocketPsych or send us a longer message via the contact form on the website. And that's at worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.